I think there's a sort of skills pandemic going on. I, I'm sorry to use that term, but you know, it, it really is. It's, it seems to be that upskilling and reskilling is at the top of everyone's minds and consuming lots of effort and time. And there is a real problem if we think about skills in isolation. You know, it, it creates, it almost creates barriers in some ways because performance is the product of, of a number of things. The skills are certainly important, but they're not the most important factor. Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to episode four of season 19 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You just heard Charles Jennings, partner at the 702010 Institute, talking about the perils of over-focusing on skills. Charles's view is that performance is the product of many different factors, and focusing on one in isolation, like skills, is never going to increase performance dramatically. Learning is a process to deliver performance, it's not a final outcome. That's why we, we always should put our efforts actually into high quality performance analysis rather than learning analysis. And, uh, uh, and that why, that's why just focusing on skills alone, I think is going to leave us fall, fall short. To address multiple factors that influence performance, Charles is a big believer in getting the learning context right by better embedded learning into work, often called informal learning, experiential learning, or real learning. While in the 70-20-10 model was designed to promote this approach, many organizations adopting the model are still falling short of the mark, according to Charles. And the principle behind 70-20-10, it's not some sort of intervention matrix. And I see it used a lot by organizations. In fact, quite often I someone contacts me and says, we've just developed this great new program built on 70-20-10. And when, when I look at it, what they've done is built a great new program, uh, but it's a formal program with some social learning attached to it and some, uh, some experiential learning, some learning in the workplace attached to it. And that's what we call in the 70-20-10 Institute, that's what we call 10 plus. So in other words, in other words it's good design of formal learning, but 70-20-10, if you're going to use it, well, you come at it from the different point of view. Charles and I dig into this in more detail throughout the episode, with many insights both from the academic literature and practical case studies from organisations. We also take a look at a few other key learning topics, including getting out of the training bubble, rethinking our traditional conceptions of learning, and better embedding upskilling into daily work and social interactions. We look at Charles's recommendation to focus on performance analysis over skills or learning analysis and how organisations can achieve this with examples from a couple of companies. Finally, we look at the relevance of the 70-20-10 model for learning today and getting L&D teams back on track thinking about performance and impact instead of viewing learning itself as the end goal. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Charles Jennings, Partner for Strategy and Performance at Tulsa to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Charles, it's great to have you on the show. Can you uh, give listeners an introduction to yourself and your work, please? Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Uh, I've been working on, on ways to improve performance for about the past 40 years. Uh, initially, as an academic, I ran the national, UK National Centre for Network-Based Learning at Southampton Business School. I was a professor there way back in the 80s and 90s. 
uh, and did a lot of work around around technology and learning, especially around collaborative learning. In fact, just before I left academia, uh, I launched the world's first pure online MBA, for which the dean of the faculty and I uh, were given a, a UK Innovation of the Year award. Uh, this was back in 1995, so a long time now. Uh, but thinking back about that, it's really just been a, a stepping stone into a much bigger change that we've we've all experienced over the last 25 years or so. But since leaving academia, I've worked, especially since I took on the role as Chief Learning Officer at Reuters in 2001, I've been working on ways which organizations can actually extend their focus on learning beyond formal learning, you know, beyond courses and programs and formal coaching and learning journeys and so on, which are still the main tools that HR and learning professionals use. And, and yet all the research tells us that most of the learning doesn't happen there. So, so I left Thomson Reuters, as was then, uh, about 13 or 14 years ago now. And since then, we established the 702010 Institute, which is part of the Tulsa Global uh, operation and uh, working on this 702010 model, which is, is just a framework, but uh, basically we've found it very, very powerful. I've found it very, very powerful over the years. Great. Well, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the 702010 model uh, a bit later on as well, and I think we'll, it will probably weave into our conversation as we go. Um, Charles, it'd be great, first of all, to maybe let's start by talking about perceptions of learning. I mean, how do you think learning at work is viewed today and how should it be viewed? That's a, a really good question, David. I think that, unfortunately, many people still can't differentiate between learning and schooling. And that was a specific observation that came to me from a man called Jay Cross. And Jay and I worked together for a number of years and we're good friends. And Jay was a, a champion of informal learning or what he called towards the end of his life, real learning. And I think that the key element is that many managers, leaders seem to have a blind spot of about learning away from work, sorry, away from formal learning. And, and huge amounts of time, effort and money are actually poured into, into skills frameworks, then mapping those into formal classes and courses. Yet the return for learning away from work is usually actually quite poor. And the whole issue of, of learning transfer has bedeviled HR and talent and learning professionals for years, certainly my entire career, uh, and certainly longer than that. In fact, uh, the eminent American psychologists, Robert Woodworth and Edward Thorndike, published a pa paper all about that, about what they call the transfer of practice. And that paper was published in 1901, so 120 years ago this year. And and basically what Woodworth and Thorndike, uh, they developed something called the, the theory of identical elements. And they found that the closer to the environment where we learn something is to the environment where it's going to be used. In other words, where there's close alignment, the elements that they talked about, actually the transfer from learning into, into using and working is going to be much, more, much easier. And uh, it's, it's not really complex, uh, to be honest. And in, in 70, 20, 10 terms, you know, we always recommend what we call planning for the 100, but starting with the 70. In other words, with an organization, when an organization has challenges that require some sort of upskilling or developing new capabilities, HR and, and learning professionals should actually look first at ways in which they can help develop those skills or build that capability as part of working rather than you know, taking people away from work and, and schooling them. So I think that's the major, major issue 
in terms of thinking about learning because there is a huge almost black box which often HR and learning people don't see which is all that learning which all of us do by doing stuff during the day you know we're working on a project and we run into a barrier and we overcome it and we talk with our colleagues about it and you know and we're learning that's that's obviously you know that's what we do that's what humans do and so I think driving this narrow or this cart down this narrow road of formal learning is just missing big, big opportunities. So, it's, I mean, again, maybe for the benefit of listeners, we'll, we'll ask you to, to sort of just explain at high level the 70 2010 model. But effectively, you're saying that don't start with the 10%, start with the 70%. Start with how you can help people develop their knowledge through experience and assignment, assignments rather than formal learning in a classroom, even if it's a virtual classroom. Yeah, at a high level, absolutely. That's that's exactly what what the as I say the the, the work of people like uh, like Woodworth and Thorndike and others have shown that you know most learning occurs in the workplace. The learning that occurs closest to the point of use is the most effective. So we have all that research, and so when we're thinking about helping, whether it be upskilling or just helping solve a business problem, we should be looking first of all at what can we do. At the point of at the point of use, and how can we how can we work from there? That's really the principle. And the principle behind seventy twenty ten, it's not some sort of intervention matrix. And I see it used a lot by organisations. In fact, quite often, I someone contacts me and says, "We've just developed this great new program built on seventy twenty ten." And when when I look at it, what they've done is built a great new program, uh, but it's a formal program with some social learning attached to it and some. Uh, some experiential learning, some learning in the workplace attached to it. And that's what we call in the 702010 Institute, that's what we call 10 plus. So in other words, in other words it's good design of formal learning, but 702010, if you're going to use it well, you come at it from the different point of view. You don't start with a 10, you start with a 70 and work backwards. And and sometimes it's really necessary to have that formal learning, those formal learning in place in place. And other times it isn't. Whereas the, the common approach is that we have maybe a, a skills matrix, we develop a skills matrix, or we have a, a competency framework, and we identify skills in there. And the first stop on the journey is, first of all, we create learning journeys rather than performance journeys. And the first stop on the journey is, well, we'll need to carry out some training on A, B, C, D, rather than what, what do high performers, what do people need to do? What tasks do they need to undertake to execute their work well? And you're working backwards from that. Yeah, different way of thinking. And we'll, we'll definitely explore that a little bit more. I just wanted to pick a couple of more of the big picture stuff before we maybe talk about practical. I think we're going to talk about some examples uh, uh, later in our conversation. Um, you know, we, we talked about it before, before we started recording. You know, organisations are, are currently grappling with the so-called great resignation. Um, you know, there's, there's lots, of, lots of stuff about it um, at the moment, and I'm sure they'll continue to be uh, for the next few months. You know, what is the role of L&D and, and perhaps in particular digital learning in, in keeping employees engaged? And, and I'd love to hear your, your views about the great resignation as well and, and what the data is actually saying. Well, L&D certainly has a role in preparing people for new roles when they join an organisation or when, when they're moving. But I'm not totally convinced about the great re resignation as a global phenomenon. I mean, certainly, particularly in the US, where we have a lot of data from the USA, We've seen huge movements in the workforce over the past couple of years. But a lot of it has been among 
mid-career workers between the ages of maybe 30 and 45. But actually amongst younger workers, even in the USA, resignations have actually decreased over the last two years, as they have for older workers in the, in the 60 to 70 age bracket. But as I say, L&D has a role, has always had a role in terms of helping people into a new role or into a new job, into a new organization, helping them onboard new employees to be effective in their roles. But regarding the first part, helping onboarding new employees or helping people move to new roles in the organization, and I, I probably sound a bit like a broken record here, L&D and their HR colleagues need to, to get out of this training bubble, what we call the training bubble. You know, of course, usually some initial training will help and is often necessary. But we just can't rely on training alone because whether it's onboarding or preparing people for the next role or whatever. And in fact, a study at the European Research Centre for Education in the Labour Market, which is a group of economists who are actually researching better ways to link education with work and then feed their research into policymaking. So they're macroeconomists, essentially. Yeah. This centre has reported that even the performance of, of newly hired workers is driven by learning by doing and learning from peers and supervisors in the workplace more than formal formal learning. So, so L&D's role in the great resignation or in, in any situation where people are joining or leaving their place of, place of employment, I think is an important one. And it's, it's to help them become as productive and quickly as possible. But you know, I doubt we'd find any CEO, CEO or CFO arguing about that aim. But I think, again, the role of L&D may be different to the role that a lot of people think it is. And, Ian, and I noticed that the 20% is from de developmental relationships. So almost you get twice as much benefit from actually helping people make the right connections within an organisation uh, that are going to support their development, support them in their roles, support them to perform effectively. Yeah, abso absolutely. And I think that that learning from others, that, that 20 in, the, in that uh, framework, has always been important and will always be important. You know, we learn from others, as you say. And I, I can't think of anyone I know who hasn't found, you know, when they joined, took a new role or joined a new organisation, find someone who really knows the ropes and who is really a, a top performer. And you will learn more from conversations and building your networks around that than almost anything else. So it really is absolutely critical. And in fact, I, I uh, published a, a, a produced a publication about seven or eight years ago now called Next Generation Digital Learning Strategies. And in that, there was a case study of one of the largest, one of the world's largest technology companies that carried out a controlled experiment where they onboarded some new sales staff and they didn't put them through onboarding. They simply put them into groups of three or four. Uh, they basically socially onboarded them. They put them yeah. into groups of three or four. And the only instruction was that they would uh, meet once a week over lunch or over coffee and talk about the challenges they'd had, the successes they'd had, you know, the insights they'd had, and, and talk about what they thought they'd learned and what they could do better. And uh, there was a chap who was doing a master's degree who was studying this, and I was, I was helping him out and, uh, or giving some, some input. And, uh, and what he found was interesting, after about 18 months, those people who were socially onboarded, their performance was about the same or slightly less than people who'd been through the standard onboarding process. But their levels of customer engagement was through the roof. It was really, really high. So the stickability they were getting with their clients and their customers was really high. And that, was, that, that led him to believe that that was due to that sort of social onboarding. So learning from others, 
you know, learning while working, all those sorts of things are really, really critical. Yeah, really interesting. Really interesting. And the other the other thing we're hearing a lot about at the moment is skills. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and we've had, you know, and, and to be fair, we've had uh, guests on here working for large organisations that have talked about how they're harnessing skills data to to actually help personalise learning recommendations, career paths for, for employees and, and stuff and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and almost connecting that with workforce planning a, a, as well. Um, so there's in the field we're in, which is a, broadly speaking, people analytics, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of practitioners are, are really getting involved in getting that skills data in in the right level to actually personalise because you can't personalise something if you haven't got the right data to do it. But I'd love to hear your your view around the, the skills focus. Yeah, I, I think there's a sort of skills pandemic going on. I, I'm sorry to use that term, but, you know, it, it really is. It's, it seems to be that upskilling and reskilling is at the top of everyone's minds and consuming lots of effort and time. And there is a real problem if we think about skills in isolation. You know, it, it creates, it almost creates barriers in some ways because performance is the product of, of a number of things. The skills are certainly important but they're not the most important factor. And if you just focus on something which is not the most important factor in isolation, you know, you're never going to deliver improved individual team and organizational performance. I mean, can we imagine some football manager deciding that actually what people needed was you know, skills, what the strikers needed was just the skill to hit the ball into the net, and they didn't do anything else but just train them on the skill to hit the ball into the net. You know, clearly, I think most of us would understand that that's not going to win your matches. Uh, you know, you you there's lots of other things going on there as well, and so if we if we just focus on skills, we're absolutely sure to miss some of these other factors that influence performance. And again, I think it's worthwhile looking back and taking a lesson from uh, W. Edwards Deming, who is probably one of the top couple of management thinkers that the world's ever known. I I certainly think so. Peter Drucker would certainly be the other one on my list, but Deming uh, was certainly the leading thinker and practitioner in the field of quality and quality improvement. His work in Japan post-Second World War is, is legendary, in fact. And over his career, Deming took time out and reflected. He used a great learning tool, which is reflection. And he reflected on the causes of performance problems and opportunities for improvement. And he wrote down his reflections. And at the end of his career, Deming reported that in his estimation, most organizational performance problems and most possibilities for improvement were in the proportions about 94% due to what Deming called the system and about 6% being due to the performer or the worker. And by the system, what Deming meant was all those things that are actually under the control of management, whether they were you know, things like clear guidance, adequate processes, the right tools, suitable support, all those sorts of things. And I think the key thing about Deming, actually, as well as Drucker, was that they focused on performance, not on learning. Learning is a process to deliver performance, it's not a final outcome. That's why we, we always should put our efforts, actually, into high-quality performance analysis rather than learning analysis. And, uh, uh, and that why, that's why just focusing on skills alone, I think, is going to leave us fall, fall short. And it does bother me a bit, David, that the obsession seems to be that we've got these great competency frameworks and we've got the skills frameworks. And as long as we focus on those to upskill, that's going to solve our problems. And the answer is it may help, but it's not going to be the panacea. 
he's basically partly saying that one of the most important things is create the environment for people to thrive because that will lead to performance and skills is a contributing factor towards that of course but it's the environment that for people to thrive in yeah and we've all been there you know we've all been doing a job believing that we had the capability to do our job but the thing there were barriers things that stopped us doing the job to our best of our ability and it might have been poor leadership it might have been that we didn't have the right tools or the right processes or the, the processes weren't defined or it could have been a number of things I mean we've all, we've all been there and we know that but we often tend to forget that in the in the mad stampede to upskill folks when we come back in just a moment Charles provides some practical guidance on how to adopt a performance analysis approach to understanding and measuring the impact of learning. Every single day, your people are sharing how they feel and what they need from where they work. Are you listening? Are you taking action? You can with Medallia. Medallia, a global leader in employee experience management, empowers people leaders with the most comprehensive set of experience tools to help you act confidently in times of uncertainty. Medallia helps you shorten the window between insights and action. Building trust, fostering innovation, and activating the untapped power of your people. Visit www.medallia.com forward slash employee hyphen experience to learn more. That's medallia.com forward slash employee hyphen experience to learn more. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Charles Jennings, partner at the 702010 Institute. Now, let's get back to the conversation. You know, let's let's bring that let's bring the bit about skills, bit about the great resignation onboarding and and learning together. You know, what's your advice for organizations who are looking to adopt a more of a performance analysis approach? You know, where where should they start? Well, first of all, Put aside your past thinking about learning, uh, or about and about learning analysis and about learning needs analysis, because learning needs analysis is, is defined the solution before you start, because you've defined that the problem is that people need to learn. Now you know we all need to learn all the time, so you know it's uh, what learning analysis almost inevitably ends. The result, the output, is a course, a learning pathway, a program, or a whatever. Uh, because underlying this is this belief that formal learning is necessary to improve performance. That's why I need to, I mentioned the need to separate learning from schooling earlier on, uh, and the, the fact that learning is a process. But if we're looking for outputs, if we're looking for, for performance improvements, so we need to be focused on that. And measuring any performance improvement, we need to do some sort of performance analysis, and rather than sort of some sort of learning analysis, and. Uh, again, I'd come back to what I said earlier on. I think the answer is to start at the end. What is the organizational performance aim? In other words, what are you looking at in detail? It might say strange, but rather than starting with competencies, skills mapping, start with your desired organizational outcomes in terms yeah. of, of what are you going to achieve. Once you've determined what's expected by the leadership and how they're planning to measure it, and that sort of ticks a box in terms of, to a certain extent, in terms of your, your metrics you're going to use, uh, you can get into the detail to understand actually how the work will be done to deliver the desired outcomes. And that's one of the major problems where we start with skills. That's one of the major oversights. The skills is about what, what do I need to know? 
what can I prove that I, I, I need to know, uh, rather than, or, or even what can I do in a particular context, rather than how I'm going to carry out this work to deliver the desired outcomes. It's, it's not mapping skills, it's actually mapping tasks. So that's, that's the big difference. And again, uh, the methodology that uh, my colleagues and I at the Institute wrote a book about uh, six years ago is all about critical tasks. In fact, if you're, if you're in a role, this, this was a book about upskilling L&D, and it defined five roles. Uh, they're all performance roles. There was the performance uh, detective, in other words, carrying out the, the analysis work, the performance architect, the performance master builder, building the solutions, the performance game changer, making sure they're embedded in the culture of the organization, and the performance tracker, you know, making sure that the metrics that are being used are performance metrics and do align with you know, what the leadership wants. So you know, that's, that's the big change. And, and in terms of getting there, one of the things you need to do is find out the best way the top performers, or the way that top performers work. And that often involves observational work, where you, you find an exemplary performers have really smart workarounds and shortcuts that they've designed to make sure they do their jobs better. And these aren't usually captured in you know, standard operating procedures or manuals, but, but they're really important. And actually, if you go and talk to a manager of a team, they will often say, well, this is what top performers do, and they'll give you their exposition in terms of what they do. And when you go and look or spend some time with a top performer, you find that actually that's not what top performers do. That's what managers think they do. It's not what they do. So it's a matter of unpicking that sort of thing. So you, you need to map critical tasks for specific work, and you look for then for these other influencing factors. These are the things that inhibit or promote task, task execution. So you know the ability to deliver results is about, is about making sure that people are executing the critical tasks well and that the environment, the bigger environment, those influencing factors are actually helping rather than hindering. So that's really the important thing. I mean, I mentioned that then. That's what, what Deming calls the system. So that's, that's really critical. Yeah, yeah. Which is a bit of a, a bit of an ominous sounding name, the system. <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? Yes. Sounds big bro brotherish, I guess, but it, it's not at all. It really is around making sure that, for example, I was involved in a study with the, uh, that the Corporate Leadership Council uh, did quite a few years ago with a, a number of big global organizations. And in that study, the researchers found that there was one thing that managed, well, there's a number of things that managers could do that helped improve performance in their teams. And one of, the, one of the, the, the three top things that could help performance, well, that did help improve performance, one of them was really basic. It was actually around telling people what was expected of them, how they're going to be measured. So having absolutely clear objectives and people knowing that, you know, we don't, I guess, don't do annual performance reviews so much anymore. A lot of organizations do, but we still have ongoing reviews in terms of how things are going. Just making sure there was alignment between what was expected by the leadership or the management and what each individual thought was expected of them. And simply making sure that people knew what was expected of them, how they were going to be measured, was likely to improve the performance of that individual or that team by about 20%. And the other two factors in there were that were also almost as, almost as impactful were giving people opportunities for rich and challenging experiences so new work, maybe stretch assignments, those sorts of things, and then giving them time for reflection, giving them time to learn. So uh, a manager or a team leader simply sitting down with an individual or a team and say, 
What have you been doing? What are the what are the challenges you're facing? What's gone well? What's gone on well? What's worked well? And what hasn't? What have you learned from that? What would you do differently next time? So creating that culture of continuous improvement, and that's why I I tend not to use the term learning culture. I think learning culture is another term which has got a missing word in it because people talk about learning culture. They often really mean formal learning culture. Uh, in other words, how many how many hours per, per week, month, year are people spent in formal training or learning or developmental activities? Uh, and, and that's sort of, again, I think missing, missing the shot. I, I tend to use the term about talking about creating a culture of continuous improvement. Because if we're talking about a learning culture, it tends to focus down on individuals. A culture of continuous improvement tends to be much broader. It, it addresses individuals, teams, and organizations. So we're looking at improving you know, the work we do, the work the organization does. And, and I think, again, that's a real challenge for a lot of learning and development people. They, they often talk about the business and us. You know, I often hear L&D people talking about, well, what does the business want? Well, actually, guys, we're part of the business. You know, we're, we're, we're part of the system. So, you know, it's, again, I think thinking of it in, in bigger terms around continuous improvement rather than learning. We haven't got our feet stuck in that, that learning process piece. We've got our, our feet firmly in the improvement process. So, again, you know, I find that the 70-20-10 methodology we work with is very aligned with things like agile methodologies and lean and things like that. So, you know, which are all about incremental changes, incremental improvements. And as you said, it focuses on the outcomes you're trying to affect and then think about what the inputs will be to help you to, to, to do that most effectively. I mean, rather than starting at the beginning. It, it, I mean, in many respects, it's it's kind of common sense, isn't it? But it's it's not really followed in, in many yeah. in many companies, in most companies. That's right, David. It's common sense, but not common practice, I think. Yeah. And, and I've, I've had situations over my career where I've I've gone to work with an organization or maybe I've gone to run a workshop or you know, a masterclass or something. And I've had someone take me to one side and say, now, this is a team of learning people. We don't want you to talk about performance. <laughs> to which I say, well, actually, you might as well not, not have me come because if you're focused on learning alone and not focused on performance, uh, you know, we won't see eye to eye because I think that if, you're, if your focus is purely on learning outputs and that's the end, the end game for you, you're not even getting a fraction of the way there because what you're expected to do, what your what your senior leadership in your organization expects you to do is to have an impact to actually create a real a real impact to what you know to actually change the game to a certain extent. So, you know, that's I think that's a it's a bit of a challenge that we do have. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Charles as he talks through some case studies of organisations taking a broader performance-focused approach to learning. Charles, I, what, what, I know what listeners love to hear 
in the in this podcast really is some some examples. It'd be it'd be great if you can share a couple of case studies that about companies that are taking this approach to uh, performance analysis and and in, and and using that for you know as as to then help shape the learning they're doing and the business impact that they they get they're generating from it. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. I can give you a couple of a couple of cases. Uh, one uh, which I think is really a, a really good lesson in practical use of these different approaches is a company called Hilti. Now, Hilti is a large uh, global organization that provides uh, tools and equipment into uh, into the construction industry and other industries. All of us will know, uh, will have seen vans or seen the logo. It's got a very, very strong logo, Hilti. But we work with a team, with the L&D team at Hilti uh, a few years ago now. Uh, and as, as part of our performance-based learning program that we run, which is which is evidence-based sort of immersive experience. So it's not a what you'd call a traditional training program. It's it's a it's a program where people work on a project which they're addressing in their work and they apply this methodology to it. So we did that. And as part of this activity, the Hilti team was able to actually reduce what they call their time to productivity for its newly hired sales managers uh, significantly. So what they would do, what they Hilti had a problem. They found that at the time, the company was growing rapidly. There was a lot of change going on. And their churn with their newly hired sales managers was about 33%. About a third of newly hired sales managers were either leaving the company within after the year, at the end of the year, or were moving off into other roles in the company. So they had this major, major problem whereby there was big, big high levels of churn. And they developed a metric which they were using, a business metric, which they called time to productivity. In other words, that was a, a business, business measure that measured for Hilti how long it was before someone who'd they'd recruited, someone had paid for all the hiring, recruiting, onboarding, getting them into role, getting them up to speed, paid those costs back and was starting to earn money for the company. So that was the sort of cutoff point. So, and that was pretty easy for them to calculate. So they could, they knew how much it cost to recruit, to, you know, to, to advertise, recruit, hire, and, and and train, and so on. And at the time, uh, their time to productivity for newly hired sales managers was around eighteen months. In some cases, it was higher than that. In some cases, it was lower. But generally, it, it took over a year. And it doesn't take brain, you know, brain scientists to realize that if you're a sales manager, you've probably got a bonus attached to your work. And therefore, if you're not being productive, uh, you're not likely to hit your, hit your own targets for your bonus. So therefore, you know, that's not satisfying as an individual. And also the company was suffering. So what, what, what the Hilti L&D team has, did as part of this project with us is they redesigned their onboarding. They found that their onboarding was too long and it was there was no focus on tasks. So coming back to that point about focusing on critical tasks and tasks. So with our help, they redesigned their onboarding programs and reduced it and, and made it much more experiential. There were some, some bits of formal learning that were pushed in into it. So people had to do uh, various situational awareness and things like this, you know, the stuff you'd expect a sales manager to, to know. There was, there was formal bits in there. But actually what happened was that over a period of about, about uh, 18 months, two years, that, that time to productivity came down from well above a year to about three months for about 80, well, three months for I think about 75% of the sales managers and, and less than six months for over 80% of the sales manager. So that was just a really good 
case in point where the business case was absolutely clear. The business case was in millions, you know, in terms of, of productivity and, and uh, for the company. So, so that's one case uh, example where... Incidentally, Charles, on that one, and you may not know this, but did doing that was one of the other knock-on benefits. Did it actually reduce their attrition for first-year buyers as well? You may not know, but I've just, what yes. I, my hypothesis being that if people perform, they're less likely to leave. Yes, I, I, I don't have data on that, but I believe that was the case. But one thing I can tell you, which is, which is uh, linked to that to a certain extent, is I was talking to Rachel Hutchison, who was the, the person in... Uh, who headed up all this work in Hilti, uh, after the, the pandemic first hit back last year, in the middle of last year, and she said she could look around across the, the globe in the Hilti, Hilti the countries, and she could, she could tell the countries where they'd use this onboarding approach, this new onboarding approach, to those that hadn't, because they were remaining productive. And oh, again... Again, we've seen that we've seen that in the past, where you know when things when there's lots of changes, if you know if people have the right skills, they have the right environment, they will actually remain likely to remain, and they have the right leadership, particularly, uh, and and the right first level manager, they are more likely to remain productive than others. So so that's one one general one, uh, one one specific case. If we've got time, I'll just tell you briefly about another another case study, and and that's a. a project we worked with Citibank and and Citibank had a major major challenge in that they were investing huge amounts of money in their courses and training and programs and so on and again felt that they weren't seeing uh, the benefit that they felt they should so Citibank did a whole pivot uh, from what they call courses to campaigns so they moved from a focus on courses to a focus on campaigns and one of the early campaigns or one of the frameworks they used was something called Hash Be More. So it was a big Be More, and it was all about how people working at Citibank could be more individually and actually how the, how the bank itself could be more. And they did some, some really good work. They adopted uh, 70-20-10 framework, but they didn't call it 70-20-10. And when I sat down and had meetings, for, for, first of all, with Citibank, they said, look, Charles, you know, there's a group, we've got, we got nearly 200,000 bankers in this organization. Uh, give them numbers and they will just go down the rabbit hole of wanting to know, you know, what the 70 is, what the 20 is, what the 10 is. So they, uh, we talked through it and they, they adopted what they call the three E's. So the, way, the, the three ways in which learning can really be, you know, can help. And the three E's were learning through education. That's the formal learning. Learning, learning through uh, experience. Obviously, that's the, that's the, uh, uh, the, the learning through through others, you know, so, sorry, learning through, through working. And the third one was learning through exposure, learning through, uh, through others, through exposure to others. So the, the learning through education corresponded to the 10, the uh, exposure corresponded to the 20, and the experience corresponded to the 70. And they rolled that out. And actually, David, the, within Citibank, the people in uh, marketing and internal comms were as involved as L&D in this because one of the things that L&D doesn't do well is, and, and why should it? We're not great as internal marketeers and getting the messages and getting the, getting the changes embedded in the culture of the organization, which is why when we produced the, the roles and the, wrote the book, uh, we had this performance game changer, which is specifically about driving the projects through, but also embedding them in the culture of the organization. And Citibank's Be More program was very, very successful in terms of changing that 
focus from, from courses to campaigns. L&D changed the way it, it did things. And they did some really great work in terms of having, and they still run, a 30-day challenge. So everyone in the organization can sign up to a 30-day challenge, which are sort of micro-activities that people are expected to carry out each day. Uh, and the activity might be something like sometimes quite challenging activities, such as find someone in your team or someone you work closely with and ask them, how am I perceived by everybody? Now, that's not something you'd normally get someone in learning and development, you know, facilitating or supporting. But actually, things like that were really powerful. And they, they flipped the approach. The standard approach to learning and development is, you know, we learn and then we share and then we apply. And actually, they flipped it. So the idea was you, you would carry out some activity, you would apply something through these 30-day challenges. And a lot of the challenges could be done uh, not necessarily at work, but they could be done, you know, every glass of wine or when walking the dog or whatever. And and then you shared, they have a, a social platform, so then you shared your experiences and shared your learning and what you what you discover from that uh, on the platform. And then if you wanted to explore further, there was a lot of learning materials and learning content, so you went deeper, you had the opportunity to, to dive deeper. And that, I thought, was a really good practical way of using this model, which is about, you know, sure... Formal learning is important, but there's a hell of a lot more that we can do in order to help people think differently and work differently and, and, and work better. And is part of it just connecting the 70, the 20 and the 10 together better than maybe is traditionally done? Yeah. And again, in our book, we talked about them being recursive. I mean, uh, often people will say to me, oh, is this, a, is this a 70 activity or is this a 20 activity? And I'll say, well, actually, it's difficult because... Often, you know, good, good 10, good formal learning will have elements of social learning in it and will often have elements of some sort of experience and, and, and learning in the workplace in it. And, and when we learn socially, you know, we're often reflecting on what we're doing. So it's reflecting on the 70 or whatever. So they're, they're sort of recursive. And, 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 and so the, the trick is to think about them holistically, think about them all together and, and not to worry and bother too much about oh is this a 10 is this a 20 is this a 70 actually it's around we're trying to help people get better at doing their jobs we're trying to align what lnd does with the organization with the leadership's objectives and the changing objectives of the leadership and 70 20 10 is simply a framework for helping helping that happen uh, so don't get hung up on the numbers and in fact even the numbers from the original research, which was carried out at the Center for Creative Leadership back in the 80s, even the numbers are, are manufactured because the original study had 16 categories. And Bob Eichinger, who was working with the uh, Center for Creative Leadership at the time, but was also at PepsiCo, uh, Bob looked at this and said to the academics, look, no one's ever going to understand this. So let's just take away a couple of the categories, which are around things people did at home and also uh, adversity. He said, I don't think you can ask any manager to put people in a position of adversity in order to, because we know that's great learning, but that's not what we should be doing. And he looked at the rest and said, well, it's roughly about 70 learning through experience and practice and, and, and so on, about 20% from or 20 from conversations and networks and so on, about 10 from formal. And so even the original numbers, as I say, are, are, are sort of manufactured, but they're a simple, and, and Bob, uh, I spoke to Bob three or four years ago, Bob Eichinger, and he referred to it as a mean, he said, which I thought was a quite a nice way. We always refer to it as a, as a framework, a reference model or a framework. But Bob talks about it as a mean. And it's really just a, 
an approach to extend our thinking and practices about, to come back to your very first question, uh, 70 2010 is really a, uh, an approach which helps us step beyond formal learning as a way to help people work better and help organizations perform better. Uh, that's all it is. Well, I think you've just answered my next question, which is what is the model's relevance today? Um, so if you wanted to expand on that, then please do. And maybe are there any misconceptions around the, the model that you'd like to sort of just talk about as well? The answer to the first question is really easy. Yes, it is as relevant today. I've had lots of discussions with people who say, well, it's not really as relevant because, you know, social learning wasn't as important as it is today because we're much more networked within organizations. Organizations are much more flatter. They're not so hierarchical as they were. And of course, that's the case. And if you take the view that the numbers are sacrosanct, uh, of course, it's, it's, it's changed. Uh, but the point is, people... Adults learn in four basic ways, you know, and, and again, I like to get things down to sim in simple terms. All of us learn through rich and challenging experiences. We learn through opportunities to practice. We learn through, through conversations and building networks. Uh, Jay Cross always used to say that conversation was the greatest learning technology ever invented. I think in a way he's right. Uh, so, and we also learn through reflection and reflective practice. So there's, so there's those four, four things. I, I, bunch uh, conversations and networks together because they sort of fit together. Uh, but I think those rich and challenging experiences, practice, conversations and networks and reflection are really the core about how people learn. And it doesn't matter what domain you work in or how experienced you are or whatever. As you become more experienced, you probably learn less, need less formal input from learning than when you're a newbie. Uh, so there'll be changes there. And if you're working in a highly complex cognitive work. It may vary, of course, but actually those fundamentals, for me, sit true across any domain. It doesn't matter whether you're out, you know, working in, in manual work or in factory work or whether you're working, working in highly cognitive, you know, knowledge work. It's actually those same principles. So in that way, I found 702010 just a really useful framework uh, throughout to, it, it's clear, I've never found a a senior leader, when I've explained 70, 20, 10 in those terms, I've never found a, a senior leader say, hey, Charles, can you just tell me that again? In other words, they don't get it. Or anyone who's said, who's challenged me on the fact that actually most of the learning occurs as part of working. I mean, again, as we as we get more experience, we realize that, you know, we learn more from others and from, from doing stuff than we ever did. You know, those certificates are very nice to hang on our wall, those degree certificates and so on. But, and again, it comes back to, Jerome Brunner, the great educational psychologist, who once posed a question about what's the difference between, 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 uh, uh, I think his, his metaphor was uh, being an architect, learning architecture and being an architect was his metaphor. And basically what he was saying, what Brunner was saying is, we come out of university with our architecture degree. Does that make us an architect? And Brunner's answer was no. It means you have an architecture degree or an engineering or a, a psychology or whatever degree it happens to be. Uh, but it doesn't make us that professional. Uh, what makes us an architect or a surgeon or a whatever it happens to be is, and Brunner described it as being inculcated into the profession. In other words, knowing the right people to ask the right questions at the right time, knowing where to go to get help, knowing, yeah. knowing how to do something because you've done it lots of times before. And I think that's, 
that can't be short. Well, it can be shortcutted in a shortcut in a in a way, but actually that's a process, and that's what that's what learning's all about. You know, that's the process, and performance is the output. Well, got last two questions. We're looking forward on both of them. Um, yeah. So looking forwards, uh, where do you see the learning and development field in in twenty twenty two and beyond? Uh, focusing more on the business on business outputs. Uh, Thinking about performance-based learning and what, what we call value-based learning. In other words, moving from being order takers into value creators and performance enablers. So moving away from focusing on individuals and on just you know putting people through the courses into focusing on real values, on real value. I see that as being uh, the key things. And also, I'd like to think that we're going to focus more on creating a culture of continuous improvement not necessarily just a focus of on a culture of learning. Uh, they all make sense. And it's almost, if you're an L&D role, what can we do to support a team develop and perform? Then if you help the team, you're going to have a bigger out, output than helping one person, one would think. So it's just like, again, your analogy with, the, with earlier on football, if you're a coach to a football team, you want to improve all the parts of the team together, don't you? It's not just making, as you say, making someone better at shooting. That might yeah. be part of it. But. Yeah, yeah. And David, just to close, it goes back to an anecdote I can tell of when I went to school in Australia, uh, my housemaster at school was a, a great rowing coach and wrote a book about rowing, about coaching rowing. And in it, he quoted an Australian gold medal uh, winning rower of the, 19, of the 1920s, I think he was, who said, you don't learn to race by rowing, you learn to row by racing. And and you know to the to the football analogy and uh, it's not just sporting i think it's it's any sort of work you yeah. learn you learn to do things better by doing them okay, and yeah. and if you've got some guidance and support and you have the right networks uh you know you will learn you will th that's the best way to learn uh so we shouldn't exclude that out of our you know shouldn't take that out of our eyesight in terms of as a, an L&D professional or an HR professional where we're not a machine simply to design, develop and deliver training courses, programs, learning journeys, these sorts of things. We are an important function within an organization to help build organizational capability and performance. And that's really what we should be. So we need to sort of reflect and, and change our, our direction a little bit, or quite a lot in some cases, in order to do that. And, and the last question, again, looking forward, um, although just just for, just for the rest of this year or 2022, um, and this is a question we're asking everyone on the on the series, you know, what is the future of employee experience in, in 2022? Oh, David, we could spend a whole hour talking about, <laughs> about that because, because, you know, again, the research indicates that things like experience and engagement particularly, so not for just, just experience, but employee engagement, actually improved employee engagement does not necessarily lead to improved performance. In fact, the converse is true. Uh, a big meta-study, Michael Ricchetta did a meta-study of this some years ago and showed that better performing employees are usually more engaged, but more engaged employees are not better performers. So the employee experience in terms of learning and development is important. You know, it's important to help people. We all want to feel part of a, an organization. We all want to, to feel we're valued. There's no doubt about that. But again, if we start from the perspective that, you know, just building employee experience is the most important thing, I think we're starting from the wrong, the wrong point. 
You know, what is most important is performance. How do we help people do a job better? And all of us, you know, all of us, I'm sure, at some point of our careers have done jobs well. And the satisfaction you get from doing a job well means that, you know, the outcomes are great, you, you feel better, and therefore you're going to be more engaged with the organization and with your teams and so on to do it. Again, it's not rocket science, but it's, uh, it's something I, tend, I think people tend to forget because employee experience, sure, it's important, but it's not the be all and end all. And we mustn't go down that lane of thinking that if we have engaged employees, everything's going to be great because the research doesn't tell us that. Great. Well, a, a perfect way to, to, to end it on, Charles. Um, thanks for being a guest on, on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, find out more about your work? And, and you mentioned the book, if there's a title and as well, might be worth just sharing that now as well. Sure, David. And thanks very much for the invitation. I've really enjoyed just talking through these, these issues and points. Uh, yeah, you can get in contact with me through LinkedIn, but also the book is called 70-20-10 Towards 100% Performance by Aritz, Jennings and Heinen. Uh, so if you just look for 70, 20, 10 towards 100% performance, I wouldn't recommend anyone assume that they can buy it and uh, uh, and can just do it from that because it's quite a technical book. It defines yeah. all the roles and tasks and so on. But also, if you want to get in contact with me, just uh, just go to tulsa.com or 702010institute.com and you'll you'll find lots of resources. In fact, the, the Hilti case study and the, uh, the Citibank case study I talked about uh, you'll find uh, downloadable PDFs in much, much greater detail about those on the 702010 Institute site. So you can you can get all those. So just reach out if you're uh, interested and I'm very happy to talk to anyone. That's great. Thanks, Charles. And we'll put some links to, to, to that on the publicity around the podcast as well for those of you that are listening. So, uh, Charles, again, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, and I'm certainly going to be digging into those case studies a bit more as well. So, so thank you for, for being a guest on the show. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. Tune in next week for the final episode of this series, where I'll be joined by Rene Geshenish, Head of Strategic Workforce Planning at Novartis. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.